We turn in God's Word this evening to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36. Ezekiel, chapter 36. And we'll be reading starting at verse 16, and then we'll be reading through verse 32. So 16 through 32 of Ezekiel chapter 36. Understand the the context. The people of Judah have been taken into captivity. They are in the midst of their 70-year captivity in Babylon. Sometime during that time, uh, God speaks to Ezekiel. Uh, Sometimes he speaks to him by the means of visions. Uh, certainly by the means of illustration, sometimes directly. And uh, we have one of those sections here. Ezekiel is uh, uh, sometimes a very difficult book to make one's way through because you have to maneuver through uh, the various components that, that are going on here. Is it a vision? Isn't it a vision? And so how do I understand this? Uh, as it comes to me. But you also have to work your way through because God is coming to Ezekiel primarily, one, to remind the people or to confront the people with what brought them there. Why are they in captivity? It appears that some don't understand why. And my guess would be we're at the latter stages of that captivity and when you're back in there for 50, 60 years, there may be a whole new generation who doesn't understand necessarily why we're here. So part of it is to remind the people, why are you in captivity? Two, that God is about to set them free. God is about to bring them back and his plan and his purpose in doing that. But you also have to read that God has a further plan for his people which comes to fruition in the life of Jesus Christ, but in the passage we have today, even more pointedly, begins at Pentecost. And so uh, with all of that as background, let's read God's word, starting at 16 of verse 36. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, whether... Wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. 
And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, even though you, even when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourself for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the new heart that you gave us. Instead of the heart of stone, thank you for putting your spirit in us, causing us to walk in your ways. We thank you for this scripture passage. Please be with Pastor Bob as he explains this passage to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the first thing I'd like you to do is to take your hymn book and turn to page 930. We have not done this up to this point. I made it all the way up to chapter 19 of the Westminster without doing this. But I think there are a couple of things just from last week's Sunday that that we need to touch on that I want you to see where things were going and what the Westminster is saying in accordance with what God's Word uh, taught us last Sunday evening, okay? So first of all, in paragraph 1 on page 930 under chapter 19 of the law of God, okay, it talks about the law that God gave to him, to Adam, that covenant of works, okay? This law... Question, or section 2 says, after his fall, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness and as such was delivered by Moses upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and written in two tables. The first four commandments containing our duty towards God and the other six our duty to man. Hence, the message of this morning in the reading of the law. Now that is the moral law. That's what was upon Adam's heart. That is what God has put out there. Okay? Perfect obedience, you have life. Disobedience, there is death. The point that the Westminster makes is that this law, okay, this moral law, is not suspended because of Christ. That because Christ came, it doesn't mean the moral law is no longer in effect. Go down to paragraph 5. 
the moral law doth forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof. God never sets aside the moral law and says, now you can do whatever you want. It's okay. Make it up as you go. His moral law that was on Adam's heart that then became, as it were, codified in the Ten Commandments is still operational for the world, certainly, but it comes to their judgment. But it's also that which you and I are under. It binds us. Okay? We, we are to obey this. But it's not going to be there to condemn us or to make us righteous. Christ fulfilled that. Christ did that for us. But God still expects us as believers to keep that law. Now we'll come back to that point in just a minute. Okay? Notice also paragraph 3. Besides this law... He was talking about the moral law. Besides the moral law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give the people of Israel, as a church under age, ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worshiping, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. We don't do animal sacrifices anymore, in a nutshell. Simplified, yes, but in a nutshell. We don't offer animal sacrifices because Christ became the sacrifice. We don't do circumcision anymore because that would be the shedding of blood which is no longer needed or necessary. Because Christ has shed his blood, therefore we have a bloodless ceremony in baptism which reminds us of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Okay? Then we come to the next section, okay? Chapter or section four. To them also, as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people not obligating any other now further than the general equity of thereof may require. So here is probably the, the, let let me in a nutshell give you the most common illustration of that. In Old Testament Israel, there was a rule that around your house, the roof of your house, you had to have a fence. Now, why was that a rule? Because they made use of the flat roof of their house. That was a place they used often on the roof of their home. And therefore, if you had visitors or guests, you had to be careful, or little children, that they did not fall off. So God says, you have to have a fence around your house. The roof of your house. Now, So if we go by somebody's house today who has a flat roof, but they don't do anything on there, they they don't use it, it's not like there's a door out to it and they're sitting out there in their lounge chairs, it's not used in that way, it's just a flat roofed home. We would not say, you must have a fence on that roof, God's law says it. 
But there is a general principle, right? God is saying, even when you build your home, you have to build your home in such a way that you safeguard the lives of other people. So if I've got a swimming pool in my backyard, and there are neighborhood children that live in my community, it makes sense based upon the general equity of the law. It never says I have to have a fence around a swimming pool. It doesn't say that in the law. But the general equity is this. I should do all I can to protect my neighbor's life, especially as little children who may wander into my yard and fall into my swimming pool and drown. I I probably should put a fence around that. I should probably have some sort of warning system to protect them. That's my duty. That is my responsibility based upon the general equity of the law. So we don't take the specifics of the law and say you must do it because it might not even apply any longer. But we take the principle that that law teaches and says, you know, we we have to do this. We, We as Christians should be doing this on our own. It's not like, oh, City township made me put a fence around my swimming pool. I don't know why I'm doing that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that shouldn't be our attitude. We should do so willingly. That, that should be a general principle to safeguard the lives of other people. Yeah, that's my responsibility. God's judicial laws teach us those kinds of things. Those kinds of responsibilities that we have living in a society, living in a community. So, Two points, okay, from last Sunday night before we get into Ezekiel 36, okay? We're done with the reading of that, okay? One, Dr. Tim brought this up, okay? Good observation that there is something that proceeds the law of Moses, okay, on Mount Sinai in regards to capital punishment. It's Genesis 9, verse 6. It's God speaking to Noah, saying, okay, that if a man takes a life, by man shall his life be taken. That's a principle of the moral law that precedes Mount Sinai. That's a principle that God gives us that precedes the judicial law. So if we were going to say, is there still a basis for punishment then, particularly of murder, in the word, because that might be, think, well, that's a judicial law. That, that perhaps is, we're supposed to just have the genuine general equity. Genesis 9, 6 would say, no, there is something that precedes it. God gave us a principle prior to that law that says the value of human life. And this is how you are to value a human life. If somebody takes a human life, their life should be taken. Now that's not for me to decide. That's not for the church to dictate. That is a rule of the state to be operational. So that's one. Secondly, okay, this general equity once again. I think I've already made the point, but just let me underscore it very carefully, okay? This general equity applies only to the judicial law, not the moral law. 
And that general equity applies not to the ceremonial law. That has been fully been dealt with in Christ. He is the fulfillment of all of those ceremonial laws. So, so we don't go out and, and practice Passover anymore. Because Christ is the fulfillment of that. Okay? We, we don't practice the, the feast of ingathering anymore. Christ has fulfilled that. All those ceremonial laws and washings and so on, Christ has, has fulfilled them all. The moral law, still in operation. Ceremonial law, fulfilled in Christ. The judicial law, we pull out from it those principles that are still in place for our lives today. And so there's value. There's value in studying Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There's value in looking into that. Because it tells us either of the greatness of Christ's sacrifice, it tells us how we should be living in this day and age, and it tells us what are the principles that ought to be guiding our life as a people of God as well. So now let's go to Ezekiel chapter 36. Because the last section, the last section in chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession says, this teaching about the moral law in no way sets aside the message of the gospel. They are not in conflict with one another. It's not like, well, you either have to be law or you're a gospel. Or you're a gospel and you're against the law. The Bible is bringing those two together and saying law and gospel work together. Not for our salvation, but for how we live as the people of God. So listen, first of all, tonight, to the Lord's promise. Let's go back to verse 27. Here is God's promise. He's speaking. I will put my spirit within you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God's promise, I will put. I will pour out my spirit. When the day of Pentecost came, and the spirit has been poured out upon that day, Peter stands and speaks. And in his sermon on that day, he references the book of Joel. And in Joel chapter 2, verses 27 and 28, we read a very similar statement as this. In that day I will pour out my spirit upon you. It's obvious that the New Testament understands the fulfillment of Joel and the fulfillment of Ezekiel. Not as being when the Jews returned from Babylon to rebuild the temple under Ezra and Nehemiah and some of those other minor prophets. It's obvious that the New Testament understands the fulfillment of the promise that God makes here in Ezekiel 
3627, as being when the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost. This is when the Spirit is poured out. And notice that is the Lord's action. And you see, he, even here in Ezekiel, he wants to emphasize to the people, it's not because of you. I'm not doing this because of you. I'm not doing this because you're such good people. I'm not pouring out my spirit because you've been such a wonderful nation. I'm not doing this because you've earned it by your obedience. I'm not doing this because you've done so many X amount of good works. Therefore, I'll reward you by this. I will do this. In fact, the whole context that we read in Ezekiel 36 tells us it isn't because of them. It isn't because of who they are. It isn't because of what they are. In fact, he's going to do it because of what they aren't, which is obedient. The whole thing is set in the context of the fact that they have brought shame upon the name of God. Therefore, I am going to pour out my spirit upon you. I am going to bring glory to my name. Because you don't do it. Left on your own, you don't bring glory to my name. You bring shame to my name. You went after other gods. And then when I punished you, the other nations are going, look at these people. So I will put, I will pour out my spirit. My spirit. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you go back to verse 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to give you a new spirit. But now notice, and I will pour out my spirit within you. Two different things are happening. I'm going to change you. I'm going to transform you. And I'm going to do that by putting my spirit within you. I'm not just going to give you a different spirit. I'm going to put my spirit into you. 1 Corinthians chapter 3.16 Paul in arguing with the Corinthian believers and their wayward ways of life and their kind of uh, open attitude towards society, says to them, do you not know that you are the temples of the Spirit of God? I will put my Spirit within you. You are going to become the temple. You are going to become the residing place where my spirit, the Holy Spirit, lives within you. A temple, a dwelling place, a sacred abode, a sanctuary. I'm going to put my spirit in you. You're going to become a sanctuary for the Holy Spirit. This is what God does when he causes us to be born again. 
This is what God does when we become new creatures in Christ. This is the glorious gospel. This is the message of grace. I don't earn it. I don't deserve it. God does it. God does it because, once again, of the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all of my sins. God applies that to my heart. God does that by sending His Spirit into my heart so that I am convicted of my sin. I'm convicted that I am a sinner. And I repent and I look to Christ and to Christ alone. I cannot do that on my own. That is the gospel. That is the glorious gospel. There, there can be no more beautiful picture of the gospel than this. I will put my spirit within you. We've but touched on the surface of it. But, but grasp that God is saying a sinner like me. Somebody who has brought shame upon his name. Somebody who has brought him dishonor. I'm no different than these Israelites. Nor are you. We who were the enemies of God. We who had hearts of stone. God, out of grace... Places his spirit in our hearts. That's grace. That's the gospel. Why did God do that? He didn't have to. No. The short answer to why God did it is to bring glory to his name, set in the context of this passage. I want my name glorified. But notice what happens in verse 27. We take the gospel. And now we ask the question, and what is the spirit going to do? What will this spirit that God places within our hearts, that God places within our lives that causes us to be born again, that causes us to become new creatures. What is this spirit then going to do? Look at the text. And I will give you, and excuse me, verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you. I'm going to cause you to do something. I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes. I'm going to cause you to be careful to obey my rules. I'm going to cause that. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is to cause you and I to follow God's commands, to follow God's rules, to follow God's laws. He will be the means, not ourselves. He will do this. Jesus, in speaking, right, to, to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. How's it going to happen? You're going to be born again. How? By the work of the breath, by the work of the Spirit. 
The work of the Spirit will come into you and cause you to be born again. So that what? That you're going to follow me. And by following me, no longer will my name be dishonored. No longer will my name be misused. No longer will my name be profaned. You see, we have been saved by God's grace for the glory of God. How do we bring God glory? By walking in my statutes and being careful to obey my rules. There is no tension between law and gospel. They go together. They work together. He's going to be the cause of your following, of your walking. Think of the way the New Testament speaks about our relationship with the Spirit. We are to walk by the Spirit. We are to be led by the Spirit. We are to be guided by the Spirit. We are to be taught by the Spirit. We are to be helped by the Spirit. We are to live by the Spirit. All these terms that we talk about, by the Spirit, by the Spirit, by the Spirit. Yes, and what's the Spirit going to do? Turn us into immoral people who think we can do whatever we want, whenever we please? Think we can use God's name in whatever way we decide to use it? Think we can use God's day whatever way we decide to use it? Think we become thieves and robbers? Think we can become liars? And malcontents? Does that what? Yes, yes. I'm sure that brings God's glory. I'm sure God putting His Spirit within us and us living like heathens brings Him lots of glory. Now, that's exactly what the people of Israel and Judah did. That did not bring Him glory, that did not bring Him honor. We have been saved to glorify God. And we glorify God. How? By following God. The Spirit. And what does the Spirit do? He takes us to obedience. To God's rules. To God's law. See, we, 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 we've come to a place, and, and the church has been here before. But we've come to a place in our society in which to speak that way labels you as a legalist. How can one be a legalist when one is simply pointing out Ezekiel 36, 27? He's going to cause me to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. That's not legalism. Legalism is when you're trying to save yourself by those things. Legalism is when you become so entrenched in the rules because you think that that is the means by which you gain salvation or the means by which you control other people. It's not legalistic to say, I don't think I should take God's name in vain. That's not legalism. That's obedience to the Spirit. Do you think the Spirit wants me to profane the name of God? Of course not. To obey God's laws. Look again. Keep your finger here. Look again with me at Psalm 
51. I didn't just pick this because it's a nice psalm with a nice little chorus to use as the basis, right? Go down to verse 10. I could make several other, but let's, let's just go down to verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. I mean, I think we, we would say that's the gospel. That's what God does. That's what Paul says the the Spirit does. He washes us. He cleanses us in Titus chapter 3. He renews us. But notice, notice where the psalmist takes us then. Okay, so now I'm renewed. Now I'm recreated. Now what? Then I will teach your ways and sinners will return to you. Then I will teach those transgressors your ways. What are his ways? His law. What is the response of one who has a clean heart? To teach. To teach sinners. God's ways. God's truth. God's law. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 speaks of a new covenant I will make with them in that day. A new covenant. What's a covenant? It's an agreement. It's rules. I'll make a new covenant with my people. Or we hear as we did this morning from Jesus, if you love me. You'll keep my commandments. Being a Christian, being led by the Spirit, does not mean we are not under law. It does not mean we are not under rules. It does not mean we are not under commandments. As we've learned, okay, there are certain of those Old Testament rules we are not under anymore. But the moral law we are under. Why? Once again, where did we go this morning? What does Jesus say is the greatest commandment? Love God Love your neighbor as yourself. How did the Westminster understand that? That's the moral law divided into two tables. Loving God and loving your neighbor. What does it mean to love? If you love me, you'll follow my commandments. It means we're going to strive to keep God's moral law. To bring glory to his name. To bring honor to his name. In today's society, it sounds more like this. Well... To live as the Spirit would have us live, we're going to tell people about Jesus. Well, I would hope so. That's what loving one's neighbor would be, right? Loving one's neighbor would be to tell them the gospel. But in today's society, what that becomes is this. As long as I tell them about Jesus, I can live like I want. I'll tell them about Jesus on Monday, but Sunday, watch for me out on the golf course. I'll tell them about Jesus on Tuesday, but by Friday, I'm going to be cheating on my taxes. 
I'll tell them about Jesus on Wednesday, but you come around my house on Thursday when I'm doing some chores and things aren't going right and you can hear these words coming out of my mouth. But you see, I'm telling people about Jesus, so it really doesn't matter how I live. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's the greatest commandment. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. That moral law that we are still responsible to. But you see, we're responsible to it not because we have to be. Not because we're forced to be. But because there is no better way to bring God glory and to say thank you for the grace that he has given to us. Listen to John. Okay? So turn with me to the book of 1 John. And just notice how this theme okay, is, is, is not just scattered here or there throughout the New Testament. It's not just this one verse of Jesus. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. 1 John chapter 3. Verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Where did John get that? It's not just from the words of Jesus. It's from Ezekiel. Notice the connection between commandment, keeping, loving, and spirit. Or, let's go a little further to chapter 5. Verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. They're not a weight. They're not a drudgery. They're a joy. They're a blessing. I have a new heart. I can keep his commandments. I have a new spirit. I can keep his commandments because he has put his Holy Spirit in me. That I might follow him all of my days. Or let's go to one more. 2 John chapter 1. There is only one chapter. 2 John. And this is love. Verse 6, excuse me. And this is love. It's interesting in verse 6, love doesn't stand on its own. Just love. And this is love. What is love? That we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning. So you should walk in it. Now, if there's anybody in the New Testament 
who has an affinity to the word beginning. It's John. It is John who makes us the connection in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The beginning here does not refer to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The beginning refers to the beginning. In the beginning, God put his commandments upon the heart of Adam. You know what love is? Love of God is when we seek to keep his commandments. To earn our salvation? No. To glorify him and to enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. This indeed is a a difficult section of the confession because we live in a world and in a society that wants to throw off all rules, all laws, all commandments. We want to live, we live in a society in which we, we see no holds barred in people's lives. Everybody can do what they desire to do. We, we live like we're in the book of Judges. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Father, in the midst of that generation, in the midst of our own, you are faithful in fulfilling your promise that you pour out your spirit into individuals' hearts like ours. Your grace comes. The gospel comes. and The spirit lives within us. So that we desire not to be a rule unto ourselves, not to be a law unto our own, but that we desire to submit body and soul fully to Jesus Christ so that we willingly place our lives under his kingship and live by his commands. Father, that means we're going to stand out in this world. It means we're going to be really different in this society. But Father, in the darkness of night, in the darkness of sin, people need light. May we be the light of Christ. Even as you called your people of the church of the Old Testament to be a light to the Gentiles. Father, may we too be a light in this dark world showing forth your glory and your honor, living each day, each moment, each hour for you. Not for self, but for you. So gracious Spirit, gracious Spirit, dwell within this heart of mine. And God's people say, Amen.